Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, you're cool. Someone next to you will let you look on, no problem. Someone next to you doesn't have a Bible, let them look on. Look at the title of this message, What Hell Can't Handle. I like that. Are you people awake? Okay, you're the late service, all right? I don't know, you know, where you've been, but we just got to be a, a little engaged with each other here. So, you know, a little amen now and again, a little woohoo. Don't be dead. Don't be frozen, chosen. Get a little juice up in your game. So, a little too much juice right there. Now you got a barometer, okay? Not enough juice, too much juice. We'll come somewhere. I'm just teasing homegirl. What hell can't handle? Matthew 16, we're going to read a few verses, and then we'll pray and get into it. We'll start in verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that I am? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning as we get into it together. And we ask that you would cause your word to get into us. We believe here at Reality that your word is authoritative, infallible, and inerrant. We believe that it's living and active. We love your word because in it, Jesus, we see you. So we ask that this morning you would instruct us. Jesus, we learn more about you, more about your heart and your love for us. We ask together that you wouldn't allow me to get in the way. That you would author my thoughts and my words, and that every syllable that comes from these lips would come first from your throne. And that you would open our hearts to hear you, to know you, to enjoy you. So speak to us now, God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I were to say to you guys, as I said this morning, welcome to church, there'd be a lot of different thoughts that immediately flash through your minds. Different thoughts for different people. Church is nowadays a loaded term, an extremely loaded term. There's lots of connotations, there's lots of feelings, there's all sorts of stuff that comes with that. Unfortunately for a lot of people, when they hear the word church or they think church, they think things like sadly institutional, overly political, usually hypocritical and horribly judgmental. There's other things, but as I talk to people, for a lot of people, these are some of the ideas that come to mind when I say church. Sadly institutional, overly political, usually hypocritical, and horribly judgmental. And I want to make a confession to you. At times, a lot of times, the church has been all those things. Throughout history, not always, but sometimes. Historically speaking and currently speaking, the church has been and to some degree is those things. Not all the time, 
but enough of the time that it's a problem. Enough enough of the time that the idea and the word becomes a barrier to people knowing Jesus. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. So I want to take a little chip at that this morning. And as a representative, excuse me, member of the church, as one person in the church, I want to apologize to everybody else. I want to say that I'm sorry for the way that we failed. I want to say I'm sorry for the things that we've done wrong. I want to say I'm sorry for where we've gone awry. I want to give Jesus the glory for anything good in the church, but I want to say sorry for anything bad, because if there's something good, it's Jesus. If there's something bad, it's us. Don't confuse the two. But I want to say I'm sorry. I want to say I'm sorry to the unchurched, those that have never really been a part of church, and part of the reason is they have all those ideas of how bad it could be. I want to say I'm sorry. And I want to say I'm sorry to the de-churched, You were once churched, but it was such a bummer you became de-churched. And you've been far from God, but lo and behold, here you are today. I want to say I'm sorry to you. We understand that in the churches there's a lot of hurts and a lot of failures, a lot of pain, a lot of silly stuff. And I want to take a little chip at the barrier by repenting on behalf of the church today and saying, I'm sorry. But I also want to go beyond that. I want to ask us if we could get beyond that today. I want to ask us if for just a little while now, we could get beyond the failures and the stigmas. If we could just begin to ask, what is the church supposed to be? Going to get beyond the drama, and we're going to start to ask, what is the church supposed to be? That's a helpful question. Because here's what we have here today. We have an opportunity at a fresh start. A brand new start. And you've got to understand that our God, the God of the Bible, is a God of new beginnings. He's a God of brand new things. And we have an opportunity, no matter what's gone on, for a fresh start today. And I want to encourage us that when it comes to the church, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I know we have a tendency to do that. Oh, so-and-so, he's a hypocrite, and oh, this, and I saw this, and they did this to me, and I'm done with that. Hey, Hey, it's not a good way to live. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You want people to be more patient with you, right? Be more patient with the church. I mean, Jesus isn't that way. He doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Otherwise, you'll all be kicking on the streets right now. So church, what is it supposed to mean? What is it supposed to be? There's a clue in our text. Did you catch it? It's in verse 18, where Jesus makes this profound statement. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus says, I will build my church. There's that phrase. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. In other words, hell cannot hold out against it. Now, this is the first time we see in the New Testament the idea of church here. This is the first mention of Jesus. And when you study the Bible, there's something called the law of first mention. And it's this, that any time a topic, an idea is mentioned for the first time in the Bible, that kind of sets the tone. That informs us greatly as to what the Bible wants to express about that and what we ought to think about that henceforth as we study the Bible, the law of first mention. 
Here we have the church first mentioned by Jesus. So whatever he says about the church right now, whatever that is, is a really big deal. He's setting the bar. He's setting the tone. He's laying the foundation. And whatever the church is, what he said is that he would build it and that hell could not handle it. Let's try to understand that. A little background. It says in verse 13 that Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. It's a real place in Israel. I've been there several times myself. It's about 25 miles north to the Sea of Galilee, almost to the border between modern Israel and Lebanon. It's a beautiful place. There's a spring that flows out there from underneath this mountain that becomes one of the three headwaters of the Jordan River. Crystal clear, cold water, beautiful foliage around, and, and this giant rock formations and this big cliff. At the time of Jesus, it was a really popular place. At the time of Jesus, it was a place where people went to experience and express all kinds of spirituality. It was kind of a spiritual hotbed. There's all sorts of different spiritual things happening there. There was a, a temple that was built to Caesar. So there was emperor worship going on, kind of a Roman thing. Uh, there was a structure there to worship the Greek god Pan, from whom we get the word panic. Not a good god to have. Pan was worshipped there. And then in addition, there was other gods from the Roman pantheon, the Greek pantheon, Canaanite gods, and there's this big cliff, and there today you can see the niches carved out in the cliff, and there were in that cliff these idols of all these different gods and spiritual expressions that people would come to revere, experience, pay homage to, worship. Very important place in that ancient culture. And Jesus purposefully now goes right to that spot. He goes there to confront the idols. To confront the popularly spiritual things. He goes there to confront. Now, we are people who are obsessed with popularity, aren't we? Don't lie. We are people who are obsessed with popularity. In fact, we love idols. What's one of our biggest shows? American Idol. How big is American Idol? A couple months ago, when they voted during the finale to decide whether it would be between Adam or Chris, a hundred million people voted. A hundred million. Our president only got 69 million votes. A hundred million votes. President is one thing, but Adam or Chris, let's do it. See, that's evidence that we are people who are obsessed with popularity, with polls, with idols. And what Jesus is doing in the Bible here is challenging popular idols. And what he does is he takes his own popular poll. In verse 13, he says, who do the people think that I am? What are the people saying about me? Let's take a poll of the populace. What does the population, what do the people say about me? What's interesting is that in 2,000 years, not much has changed because there were lots of different opinions about Jesus. They're like, oh, wow, you know, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, maybe some other prophet. And if you take a popular poll today, 
it's a very similar thing. Lots of different opinions about who Jesus is. You got the Jesus of Islam, who's a prophet to be sure, but a lesser prophet than Muhammad. You got the Jesus of the New Age, whom you can become like. You got the Mormon Jesus, who's not a God at all. You got the popular Jesus, well, he was a, a moralist and he was a good guy. Not much has changed. There's lots of different opinions about Jesus. But one guy had the right opinion. Peter. Here's why this is profound. Peter was not known for getting things right. That wasn't his gig. If you've ever read the Gospels at all, it wasn't like, oh, Peter, he's always right. It's like, Peter's such an idiot. <laughs> Peter gets it right. He says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus calls him blessed. He says, Peter, you are blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God had revealed to him the true identity of Jesus Christ. And he said, in confrontation of all other popular spirituality and all the other idols, he said, you alone are the Messiah and the Son of the living God. The living God. All these other idols were stone, man. They were dead. You are the Son of the living God. Now, we've got to unpack that for a moment. What does it mean when the Bible says Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God? When it says that he's the Messiah, it means that he is the unique Savior of the world. It means that he is the Savior of humanity. He was promised that he would come way back in the book of Genesis when humanity fell. His coming was prophesied for thousands of years throughout the Old Testament. In his first coming, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies, literally into a T. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, ministered in Galilee, ministered in Jerusalem. He cast out demons. He fed and cared for the poor. He healed the sick. He caused the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to walk. And he even raised people from dead and walked on the water. He was absolutely unique. When the Bible says he's the Messiah, the Son of God, it's not saying he's one of many. It's saying he's the one and only. That he's the only Savior of the world. And Jesus claimed exclusivity. He said in the Gospel of John, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one's getting to the Father except through me. And the identity that the Bible reveals. He claimed exclusivity. How radical is that? Because there's tons of religious claims in the world today. All sorts of people are claiming things. Jesus claimed exclusivity. He said, there's not many ways, there's one way, and I am him. The audacity of this Galilean guy. But he promised and pulled off something profound. He promised to pay the price for our sins. He promised to pay for something we couldn't pay for. Ever have a credit card bill that was too big? Nobody? <laughs> You're a church full of liars. So let's pretend like you spent too much money one time. And you got this bill and you don't know what to do with it. And someone comes along and says, I'm going to pay that thing for you. You see, our sin is so severe before God, there's nothing we could do to cover it, to pay for it, to get out of it, 
to remove it. And so because God loves us wildly as the one who made us, he sent his son Jesus to die in the place for us, to raise from the dead that we might have new life, abundant life, eternal life. Only Jesus has ever offered to pay your price, to die for your sins. Muhammad never said, I'll die for you. He wants people to die for him. The promise of Islam is if you die in the cause, you might go to heaven. The promise of Jesus is, I will die in your place and you will have eternal life and go to heaven. And he, yeah, praise the Lord. A radical claim shown to be absolutely true by his resurrection from the dead. Dude, nobody else in the history of the world ever predicted and pulled off their own resurrection from the dead. <laughs> Hello. He's the only one that's ever done anything like that. Therefore, his words have validity beyond anyone else in history. Now, based on that reality, the identity of Jesus Christ, Jesus is going to build something that hell can't handle. And he calls it the church. There's that word again. Two reasons why that's interesting. Because of what that word meant originally in that culture. And the fact that Jesus calls it his own. Listen to what that word meant originally in the culture. Church. It was primarily a Roman Greco culture. Greek was the language of the day. And the word that Jesus used, the word that we have in the Bible, is ekklesia. It's a Greek word. Who knows it? Forget about it. But it's what we translate into church in English. And what's weird about this is though we think of it as something unique now, church, the term was very common then. It simply meant, get this, an assembly. Ecclesia meant an assembly. And there are all sorts of assemblies, ecclesias, churches during that time. It was a common idea in that Greco-Roman culture. There were political assemblies social assemblies, different religious assemblies. People would assemble for all sorts of reasons, and that was an ecclesia, an assembly, a gathering, a church. So he takes this common phraseology, but he uses it exclusively. Only Jesus gets to do stuff like that. And he says, I will build my church. The possessive pronoun becomes emphatic meaning he basically said, the church of me. He proclaimed that this is a new assembly, a brand new gathering, and it is my assembly. I will build the assembly, the ecclesia, the church of me. And Jesus calls it his own. The church belongs to him. He was claiming ownership, and he was founding it. Now, what we then have from these few words of Jesus is a foundational beginning definition of church. Unpack it, unload all the junk, and here's what it is. The assembly of people who recognize the identity of Jesus, repent for their sins, are forgiven, and they now assemble around Jesus. The church is the assembly of forgiven men and women around Jesus. It's not a building. 
And it's not just a physical gathering. We, we always make that mistake. I'm going to the church, and we mean the building. That's not it. Or I'm going to church, and we mean the gathering. It's more than just that. It's a life gathering. It's a heart issue. It's an identity. It's the collection worldwide of men and women who have chosen to be identified with Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. And they now gather their lives around him. Not for a little bit on Sunday, but their lives now become based on the love, the forgiveness, and the mercy of Jesus. Here's why that is so important. Because we have a tendency to make church everything but that. I mean, be honest. We have a tendency to make church about all sorts of things. When, when we gather, we ought to really be thinking, we're going to Jesus. My life is based on Jesus. I live for Jesus, but now we're going to get together with everyone else in the assembly, and we're gathering our hearts and our lives around Jesus. And he's going to be the center, the focus, the reason, the cause, the consummation, the goal. What we do is make it about all sorts of other things. Programs, social club, our needs, that's a biggie, right? So many of us, you know, come and go, I'm all jacked up, fix me. I need, I don't know what's going on, I need, I need, I need. And we make church all about us. That's a monumental failure to make it about us. We make it about our needs, our drama, our talents, our gifts, our wants, our desires. And that's not church. By definition, the church is all about Jesus. He's in the center. He's the reason and the cause and the passion. Period. Everything else then flows forth from that. And when we keep that a reality, that the church is to, for, unto, with, about, and around Jesus, then stuff is cool. When stuff gets weird and we need to apologize for the church is when we make it about us. This is why there's so many horror stories about churches. When a pastor fails. Because, see, we're, we're a culture that loves idols and popularity and personalities. So we see a charismatic personality and we make it about them. And we put them on the pedestal, and if I, if I could just talk to them, what they're doing, if I could be a part of that, I'm going to hear this. And we make it about them, and, and here's the problem. Every person will fail you. Every person will fail you except for Jesus. He's the only one who's perfect. He's the only one. He's the eternal God who spoke things unto creation and who made you and loves you and has proven himself. Everyone else will fail you. And we're so into the tangible and the visceral and the right now that we make it about people and personalities and popularity. And then when the personality falters, fails, or falls, the church gets all messed up. And that's because we made it too much about people and not enough about Jesus. Or equally, when we get hurt and we feel like so-and-so didn't do what they should have done and blah, blah, blah. So we made it too much about us and not enough about Jesus. If we keep Jesus in the center, church is going to be cool. 
And that's what this church needs to be about. It needs to be about Jesus. In fact, here's what we believe about the church and Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. Okay, so in reality, we don't use the phrase senior pastor because in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, Peter says that Jesus is a chief shepherd. Translate that into our vernacular. He's a senior pastor. The word senior denotes seniority of primary importance, power, and influence. So what we have in reality are pastors, elders, other leaders, people, blah, blah, blah. But they are all subject to, submitted to, and underneath the person of Jesus Christ. He's the senior leader, the chief pastor, the head of the church, the head of the body of Christ. And if we keep that in view, it's easier for us to deal with each other and each other's failures shortcomings and misgivings. What we want to have here, this local expression of the church is, I'm going to throw a couple big words at you because I'm a nerd. <laughs> what we want to have is a Christocentric ecclesiology. Oh, what does that mean? I don't know. No, I do. <laughs> a Christocentric ecclesiology. Christocentric, Christ-centered Ecclesiology comes from the word I gave you earlier, ecclesia, ology, meaning an understanding or a study of. We want a Christ-centered understanding of the church. That's what we want. We want everything else to flow out of the idea and the reality and the practice that Jesus is the center. That then affects the way that we approach church, attend church, handle church, be the church, and do mission. And do relationships. If it really belongs to the Lord, then we approach it reverently, humbly, without our own agendas and dramas and needs. And we let it continue to be about Him and not us. As long as we keep Him the center, the focus, the reason, the goal, everything's going to be cool. It's when something or someone else becomes more popular than Jesus. We would never say that. When that starts to be acted out in our lives, things go awry. So having said that the church is the assembly around the person of Jesus, we need to ask a question. For you Christians, you're like, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Some of you are here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And church isn't your normal experience. I met some of you earlier today. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm guessing that you're here because you're interested. Unless someone handcuffed you and dragged you here, which is another thing the church has to apologize for. (laughs) Unless that took place, you're here because you're interested in something. I want to tell you what that something is. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one that your heart is longing for. Jesus is the answer to the guilt that we get weighed down with. Jesus is the answer to eternity. We're such foolish people. We can't even figure out life this month and we think we got eternity nailed. (laughs) Right? You're like, dude, what are you doing next month? You're like, oh, gosh, I don't even know. I don't don't really know. And then someone talks to you about eternity. You're like, got it nailed. 
Really? Here's the thing. Everybody gathers around something. Something of profundity. Something that identifies you. Something that informs your thought processes, your morals, your marriage, your parenting, the way you do business, the way you view eternity and the meaning of this life. Everybody gathers and assembles around something that becomes a driving factor in their identity, whether it's a social scene or a career or a hobby, philosophy, person, whatever it is, what it most often is, is yourself. We are self-absorbed, self-centered, self-obsessed, self-loving culture. We are our own idols. And Jesus came to challenge the idols. Whatever it is you gather around, you need to ask yourself, does it answer the basic questions of life? Why am I here? Why do I exist? What's the meaning of life? Whatever you gather around, does it answer this question? Why aren't you satisfied yet? See, I want to suggest to you again that only Jesus satisfies. But he doesn't live for your satisfaction. Trip out. You can rock your world. He doesn't live for your satisfaction. You live for his. He made you for his own glory, for his own purposes. And he made you for love. You see, God in his very nature, as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, is love. He's always existed in a relationship of love, and he created us to experience his love. And what's happened is sin has entered in. Humanity fell. And we are culpable. We can't look back at Adam and Eve and say, gosh, you really messed everything up. We are culpable, excuse me. We too are sinners. We fail. We don't live up to the standard of God. If you don't believe that, just read a few pages. You'll get that. Jesus came to meet the standard of God because we couldn't. Jesus came to pay the price for our sins because we couldn't. Jesus came to die so we won it. Jesus came to give us life that we might have it. This is why Jesus came. But we got to deal humbly now. we got to deal with the idolatry of self. we got to get over this front and be willing to confess, yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner. I haven't lived up to God's standards. If you don't believe that, gee whiz, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not lie. There, are you happy now? You all lied to me earlier when you didn't raise your hands for the credit card thing. You need Jesus. <laughs> Jesus came that we might have life. And he came not only to challenge the idols, he came to confront hell. He came to confront hell. He said, I'm going to build my church, the assembly of me. It's going to be on the offense because he talked about gates of hell. He said, the gates of hell will not be able to hold out against it. You know what gates meant in that ancient culture? Gates in the, in the ancient mindset were both uh, deliberative and retentive. Oh, another big word. What do you mean? Deliberative. The gates were where the elders of the city gathered and strategized, talked about policy, plans, and procedures. Did you know that Satan has policies, plans, procedures, and strategies for our lives? 
And when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail, he's saying that if you turn to him, Satan's strategy in your life will be thwarted. What is Satan's strategy? To keep you loaded down with guilt, shame, stuck in a rut of sin, fearing death, without hope, having no one to turn to who is bigger than you, without real meaning in this life, left at the end of the day with all that you ever wanted, saying, is this really it? Strategy of Satan is to ruin you. He's good at it. But Jesus Christ said, hell can't handle what Jesus did on the cross in the establishing of the church. And so, the strategy of Satan is defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. And remember, gates are also retentive, meaning they kept people in. The Bible, unfortunately, for us says that Satan holds people captive against their will and that they don't even know it. But Jesus came to set the captives free. He's greater than the power of hell. He's greater than the power of the enemy. The question is, will you be humble enough today to let him be greater than the idols in your life? The idol of you. Humble enough to confess your sins. And say like Peter said, a bonehead, Peter, thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, we experience brand new life. Some of you are there, some of you are on the way there, some of you are overwhelmed right now, I know. I've been in all those places. So what we're going to do now is we're going to have a time of response. I'm not going to ask you to do anything that, you know, you need to show or whatever, but to respond into your heart, in your heart, to Jesus. Either you're already in the church, meaning the church, capital C, the church worldwide, and you've made it about everything but Jesus, you need to repent. And you're responsible for messes in the church because of your selfishness, your agendas, your drama. A lot of us need to repent for that. Others of us, we're not in that thing called church, but suddenly we're interested in Jesus. You're here because he loves you. It's not a dink that you're here. It's a God thing that you're here. He's reaching out to you today through his son. What you need to do is repent of your sins. You don't need to talk to a priest or anybody else. You talk to Jesus. Jesus, I'm sorry. I know that I'm wrong and you're right, and I know your cross is real, and that you are the savior of the world. Save me. Something's going to happen when you pray that prayer. Can I get a witness? Lord, we thank you for these beautiful truths that we've heard today from your word. We ask the Holy Spirit you'd minister them to our lives and whatever response is right to you today, that by grace, you give us a revelation, the ability to respond to you, to call upon you to be saved, to repent for making church weird by making it about us, whatever it might be. Thank you that you're available and that you love us more than we could ever imagine. Jesus, be real in this place. Be the supreme reality. Be beautiful and tangible and wonderful. 
do what you do, Lord. Heal and set free and restore and renew. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Prayer team is going to be... Normally they're over here. Okay, you guys over there? Prayer team is standing up over there on your left if you need help. Normally I would invite you to come and get on the carpets and worship, but they're full now. But you can come up here. It's kind of like the 405. Just come up and elbow your way in. <laughs> Communion is here to celebrate and remember what Jesus has done. And if you want to get on your face, just tap someone out on the carpet and they'll move and you can come and get on your face. But let's experience Jesus together now and worship him.